This is Transformation Ground Control. Your source for all things business, technology, strategy, and change. If you're growing your business, leading change within your organization, or undertaking any sort of operational or technology change initiative, this podcast is for you. This show covers what you need to know about digital transformation, organizational change, operational improvement, and business growth. Five, four, three, two, one. And now, here's your host, Eric Kimberling. Hello, welcome to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 28. I'm here with Kyler Cheatham and Parisa Noble. Uh, Parisa and Kyler, welcome. Thank you. Hello, hello. Good to have you on the show as always. And uh, for those of you listening, uh, you can find new episodes of our show every Wednesday on YouTube and all the usual podcast platforms like Apple, Google, and Spotify, among others. And uh, be sure to follow us on social media, uh, LinkedIn, uh, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can follow us there and certainly on YouTube as well. And today's episode I'm excited for. Um, looking forward to the conversation here today. We have a special guest who's been on the show before. His name's Wayne Holtham, and he is the vice president of Third Stage APAC. And in addition to being a leader within the company, he is also a bit of a solution architect and really understands the whole solution and system and business architecture aspect of digital transformation. So I'm going to have him on the show, or I'm going to interview him later today to talk about some of those subjects and work streams that fall within the realm of architecture and integration and data, all that good stuff. So that's going to be a, a pretty expansive, wide-ranging conversation that we'll have later. And then, uh, as per usual, the three of us will unpack the conversation a bit more and dive into some more details and nooks and crannies of the conversation to analyze it a bit more uh, toward the end of the show. But before we get to Wayne and bring him on after the first break, uh, Parisa, you had some comments and observations about the recent supply chain shortages that we covered months ago in this in this podcast, but it's continued and evolved and really broadened or become more of an issue for global supply chain. So what are you seeing there in the industry? Right. Well, it's interesting because, you know, you hear about the shortage and then six months later to a year later, you're starting to see the the ripple effect of it. And that's what's happening now. I mean, we've talked about the auto industry just hurting because of this, you know, multiple uh, auto manufacturers having to cut down on manufacturing and um, trying to figure out their their way in their production lines, right? But now the problem is starting to seep into other industries like other electronics such as phones um, and particular Apple iPhones and iPads. So, um, you know, you look at Apple and they are actually crushing it. They had their recent report that came out that said they are up 50% annually year over year. Um, and it's it's going so well after they released their iPhone 12. And now they're starting to bump into the same chip shortage that all these other car manufacturers are seeing. So what does that mean? I mean, does that mean that the iPads and the iPhone production lines are going to mirror what happened in the auto industry? Um, are we really going to feel it as consumers? Like if we go to the Apple store and want to buy a new phone, are they going to be out of stock or will ha- Will we have to be on back order? Um, you know, I it sounds like Tim Cook, who's their CEO, is rather optimistic. Um, it's just a matter, 
what he was saying is it's just a matter of their lead time being a little bit longer. So they're going to get it done. It's just how long is it going to take? And then you have, you know, the CEO of Nissan, who is, I quote, knowing the current situation, we can't be optimistic. So, you know, it's a broad range of feelings when you look from industry to industry. And who knows, maybe in six months, Tim Cook with Apple is going to be feeling the same hurt that Nissan has been feeling um, up to this point because they were kind of hit first, right? The Nissan, Ford, uh, GM were all hit first and they've been experiencing it and they're a little bit more knee deep, I guess you could say, in the shortage than Apple is right now. So we'll see how Apple handles this, if they're able to come out of it um, without that much of a change in their production um, and and kind of that residual effect to consumers or if they're going to be really in the same boat as these auto manufacturers. And one thing to note too is, you know, you really see it in the auto industry right now because, you know, I have a friend who recently purchased a Ford F-150 new off the lot. And usually when you purchase a new car, you drive off the lot and in five minutes, the value of your car depreciates a lot, right? Now we're in a world where if you have the right car, right? If you bought the right car at the right time, you could actually go sell it for more than the value that you bought it for. That's unheard of. And it's just completely like this chip shortage is just trickling into all these different elements. Um, and we're going to start really feeling it as consumers. I think, you know, it's starting to, starting to happen, but they're projecting that this won't be fully resolved until 2023. So, you know, it'll gradually get better and they're working on it, but it takes billions of dollars to build these manufacturing plants to create these ships and it takes years. So, you know, we're really reliant on the existing manufacturers to make this happen and kind of get the whole world really out of the hole, as they say. So we'll see, you know, how their strategy is going to play out for how to meet uh, demand, but as of right now, it's really just kind of trying to keep up as best they can. Um, and another thing, too, that we were talking about right before we, uh, you know, went live, it's going to create this trickle effect in the economy because you have a shortage of these chips, which that's automatically going to raise the price of the chips. So, I mean, I think I saw somewhere there was a 5% increase in the price of the chips. So, and that's just for this year and it's expected to go up next year as well. So that's going to trickle into inflation and these, um, both auto manufacturers, cell phone manufacturers, et cetera, really even like refrigerators use the chips, any, any electronic that you can look at uses these ships is what I'm getting at is they, it's so widespread and it's used for so many different things across multiple industries. So it's going to trickle down from, you know, this price increase is going to increase, um, the consumer purchasing price and it trickles that way in a cycle. But then you also have, they're cutting all these manufacturing plants and they're cutting, um, you know, just production across the line, which means jobs are going to go down as well. So it's kind of a recipe for mild disaster. <laughs> you know, it's just interesting to watch this all unfold when it comes to the chip shortage. Yeah, it's super interesting. And I think you're right. There's a number of implications ranging from outages and backlogs and also contributing to inflation, you know, just the shortage of, of supply and demand. So when Tim Cook from Apple says that, don't worry about it, we'll, we'll get caught up. Well, he, he probably will. But in the meantime, there's a shortage and there's not as much 
supply as there is demand. So that's inevitably got to cause inflation to some degree. But what I find fascinating, though, what I can't reconcile hearing you talk about this is I was, as you were talking and explaining these different scenarios or different um, case studies of supply chain shortages, is you compare that, what we're seeing right now in this potential two-year recovery you know, to get supply chains back to normal, which really started about a year ago. So you're talking like a three-year window here where you're trying to get your supply chains back in, in line globally. But what I can't figure out is how is it that we were able to globally develop a vaccine for the pandemic in such a short period and get it distributed throughout the world in a year. Not to say that, you know, it's been perfect by any means and, the, and there's been supply chain issues within that distribution for sure. But it just seems like that the speed at which that was able to happen and then the speed at which supply chains just generally are struggling and recovering is, is different. So I don't know. What, what are your guys' thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that's an interesting It point. is. Yeah. I think, you know, it it really depends on the industry. Like when we talk about chips, they're so reliant on Chinese technology, right? Tim Cook, they have um, an office over in China. And when he was the COO, um, really developed that relationship. So now part of Apple's overall business model is their, their Chinese operations, um, so when you think about kind of who's making these chips and where is that shortage coming from, and when you add in a sprinkle of intellectual property and, and those types of things, really China dominates in, in that specific area. But when we're talking about big pharma, you know, for vaccine supply and development and distribution um, and world governments getting involved, then we're on a whole different playing field where nobody really has quote unquote, control, like they do within the chip industry. So, you know, that that can be a, um, a volatile subject, but sometimes, you know, it, it's as simple as the ownership issue over what that looks like and, you know, the foreign relations there. Yeah, it's a great point. It's, it's almost like, as you're saying that, it makes total sense that with vaccines and the the development and distribution, the supply chain related to that, you had the whole world pouring money and resources into that. Whereas with Apple or Nissan or whoever, it's not that people don't care, but they don't care as much as getting a vaccine out to the world. So maybe it's just that not having that same sense of urgency, life and death sense of urgency. Um, but it does make you wonder when it is something that is life and death, like a new car may not be, but you know, medical device or other types of drugs or things that are life and death. It makes you wonder, like, are there implications there or supply chain issues there that are affecting those industries? I wonder as they're producing these, if those types of things, like you just said, in the medical industry with medical equipment or something that is life and death, death, is that going to be prioritized once there are chips? You know, does that automatically go to them and then the cars and the iPhones are kind of on the back burner? I hope so. <laughs> I hope that's the case. Right. And just to piggyback off what you said, Kyler, uh, there is a chip manufacturing company in Taiwan and they are the biggest, from what it sounds like, they produce 70% of the chips in the world. So, I mean, absolutely what you're saying. And Taiwan and China, like that whole relationship um, is an interesting one, right? And then you look at just how the world is kind of playing out in our relations, our global relations and foreign relations. So I don't know if, you know, down the line, hopefully that isn't impacted, but there's so many um, contextual 
elements that play into will this supply chain shortage continue or are we going to all be friends again and, you know, it, it won't be a problem. But there's just so many things that are uh, influencing the shortage from the pandemic to, you know, there's even a couple plants from what I read in Texas that produces these chip manufacturer chips, right? And they uh, had a huge pause due to that freeze that Texas experienced. So there's just so many outside forces that play into this topic. It's interesting to see how how much a supply chain can be affected by various things, right? Yeah. Yeah. And it, and I think there's, uh, you know, we're seeing a shift in the corporate and organizational landscape where they're thinking about supply chains differently. And if they're not, they should be as far as, you know, not just automating technology with technology the way they have in the past. I think, you know, a lot of ERP or supply chain types of transformations had been in the, historically focused on sort of the status quo of, you know, the assumption that I've got a pretty good network of vendors, I have a good handle on my supply chain, I have a good understanding of where, you know, what supply and demand looks like. Whereas now I feel like we're, we're sort of like fish out of water trying to figure out how to navigate this whole thing. And, and that's where when you think about a technology deployment or any sort of transformation that affects your supply chain, you really have to think about it differently than, than you might've even just two or three years ago. And, uh, that's, you know, a big part of what we're seeing in the market is organizations looking for help beyond the traditional, let's just plug in a new off the shelf system that was designed, you know, five or 10 years ago and assume that that's going to work for, for today's supply chain. So there's, you know, other, I know a few episodes ago, we, we covered that topic a little bit more about different types of technologies and things to be thinking about. Yeah, definitely. I'd love to see the forecasting in those systems since 2020, you know, because you kind of have to just like rip that one up, right? I don't know what happened there. Um, but when we, you know, talk about those different systems, not only from a change management perspective for the organization, right, understanding what your unique sp supply chain looks like, but also for the general public. And I think that's the biggest perception issue for a lot of these shortages, right? It creates this culture or perception of fear, of lack, right? Of scarcity. So then people start to act, you know, you see that guy at Costco with, you know, all the toilet paper and the cart and those types of things. Um, so then that's another kind of barrier is all of a sudden you have this demand because, you know, we saw media stories about, shortage in some sort of industry or now someone's going to buy 10 iPhones and then sell them on eBay, you know, for thousands and thousands of dollars. So I think that human piece really plays into that um, um, just the same way as, as global markets and technology can do. Right. Wow. Good point. And it's just, you know, part of me wonders, could it be divine intervention? Because you look at the chip shortage no, stay with me. So we are, we always talk about how technology is advancing so quickly and things are happening so fast in just a matter of two years. We have like a completely new, you know, system that we're running on. But isn't it interesting that this uh, chip shortage is happening right when we are in what seems like a catalyst phase? Something is a catalyst. Something's making it grow so quickly. Probably the pandemic, everybody working from home, etc. But Right when we are, you know, in super fast mode with our progression in technology, we have this little thing that's holding us back a little bit. 
you know, people are going to have to slow down, um, maybe not make their products with the chip. I know another friend who just bought another car and they just sold it without the navigation, you know, and they're just continuing forward um, with production, but just without a few of the key elements that we've gotten used to. So it's interesting to think about, right? It's kind of that, you know, they play into each other. We're progressing so quickly, but one of the key elements that's helping us progress is now um, in shortage. Yeah. To what extent? I don't know, but there's it does a, affect it a little bit. At the very least, there's a, quite a bit of irony there for sure. You know, as far as the, the fact that we, we're having trouble figuring out how to, how to, with all the technology we have, we're having trouble figuring out how to automate or fix the supply chain for technology industries. So that's, that's an interesting mm-hmm. dichotomy. It's interesting. They might need you, Eric, to go over there and give them some supply chain 101, you know? Well, the good yeah, thing I, is I mean, it's, it, <laughs> go ahead. I was just going to say it's fascinating because the, uh, you know, so many things that companies didn't have to think about before, like, uh, you know, if, if you think about a, a company like an auto manufacturer or any technology product or like an aerospace defense type product where it's just hundreds or thousands of different raw materials and components that go into it. You know, you might have had, you know, many vendors across your supply chain where you just had that one vendor that you sort of relied on and you assume, you know, good quality, good pricing. Now, all of a sudden, what happens when they jack up their pricing? You don't have a plan B. So it's it's also like a matter of just really looking beyond your normal supply chain and trying to diversify and hedge against risk and all that good stuff. So right. Very you, Kyler, what, what were you going to say? Oh, I was just going to say the good news is, since this conversation is so sunshine and rainbows, right, is that if you buy a car... <laughs> you don't have any gas to put in it. So that's, you know, <laughs> maybe that will help kind yeah. of those health analytics that we talked about with AI last week. <laughs> right. Yeah. Now yesterday in uh, Denver, where we're based uh, in the United States, um, just right by my house, a gas station I go to all the time was just out of gas. And I just thought that's really, it's really strange. That's yeah. not something you see oh, no. in a metro area right. like that. So. That happened to me the oh, other day gosh. at the grocery store, and I just was like, I couldn't even imagine it being out of gas. But again, important to think through that perspective, not only like from a personal standpoint, but also that kind of goes back to what is all of the different pieces of your supply chain within your controllables and outside your controllables, right? And thinking through those. And I think that's why it's so important as we go into the next year in 2022 to really have those strategic alignment when it comes to goals and processes, like this is the time to really do that, tighten that up, invest in that new software. So you are ready to kind of go through those unexpected ebbs and flows of the marketplace. Absolutely. And I'm excited because I feel like system architecture and data all plays into that, right? So I'm excited to hear your conversation with Wayne. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm glad you made that transition because I was struggling with how do we transition from supply chain shortages <laughs> to architecture, but that nice job on that, that segue <laughs> there. But it is true. I think you're right. It is all about tying together data and having better visibility into your supply chain or into your organization in general. And that's a, especially with today's environment where one single off the shelf system is unlikely to satisfy an entire organization's needs chances are you're inevitably going to have multiple systems you've got to tie together, multiple sets of data and all that stuff. So that makes architecture even more important, which is why we are excited to have Wayne on the show here. In just a few minutes, we're going to 
Take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll have Wayne Holtham on the show to talk about solution architecture, integration, and data. And you'll want to stick around for that because this is, quite frankly, a topic I don't enjoy talking about a lot, partly because I don't understand it very well. It's, it's an area I'm not very strong in when it comes to uh, transformations. But Wayne talks about it in a way that's extremely easy to understand. So I'm, I'm excited to have that conversation with him and learn a little bit more. And every time I chat with him, even though I talk to him all the time, every time we do one of these interviews, I learn a ton. So I'm looking forward to that conversation. So we'll take a quick break. We'll be right back with more on Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com. Okay, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, your source for all things digital transformation. You can find us with new episodes every Wednesday in the morning in the Americas, later in the day in the afternoon uh, in Europe and the African region, and then uh, later in the evening on Wednesdays in the Asia-Pacific area. And speaking of Asia-Pacific, we have our next guest from Australia here today, and it is Wayne Holtham, who is the Vice President of Third Stage Asia-Pacific based out of Brisbane, Australia. Uh, he's going to be on the show here today to talk about not just his experience in APAC, but more importantly, or more specifically, talking about his experience as a solution architect and helping clients with their transformations as it relates to architecture and integration and data. So all that being said, uh, Wayne, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. And uh, good morning, uh, Eric. <laughs> absolutely. absolutely. It's, it's always morning somewhere, right? Even if it's not That's sure right. where I am or where there's well, so I guess just to start, you know, we want to talk a bit in a few minutes here about architecture, data, integration, and whatnot. But if you don't mind, maybe just tell us a little bit about your background and, uh, you know, sort of how you came up in the space of digital transformation and basically what your, what your core areas of competencies are. Uh, I suppose I've been involved in a lot of the um, digital transformation rollout programs. So in the early days, you know, it was a lot of on-premise, you know, big scale SAP rollouts and, and different type uh, systems. And uh, as, as we've moved on in modern times, we've actually got now cloud, we've got uh, a number of different ways, and it's more of a digital transformation than just implementing a solution. And so for probably uh, the last uh, 20, 30 years, I suppose, um, in some form, there's been technology and it's evolved. And so for me, I've, I've done everything from training people uh, to actually uh, designing architecture and solution architecture. And, and now I'm a bit passionate about uh, the functional aspect of architecture that um, that uh, helps people get what they need out of a, a new transformation. Got it. Got it. Great. Well, that's a great well, that's launching point or transition into my first question for you, for you. 
And by the way, yeah, by the if way, anyone yeah, in the audience has questions as we're going through this discussion, feel free to chime in and add them to the chat box and we'll get to questions as we're going here. Um, so feel free to jump in at any point. But my first question for you, Wayne, is what, what exactly is system architecture? If we back up and just define it in the simplest terms, what does system architecture mean and why is it so important to any sort of digital transformation? I suppose it's 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 um, the systems these days are a bit more complex than what they were in the past. Before, we would just put in a module, a system, and that would be it, and it'd be fairly self-contained. Whereas today, when we look at system architecture, it looks at a number of different levels. So it can be the cybersecurity, it can be the database layer, it can be the um, you know the access that for into the system because we have a lot of now remote apps that we want to actually incorporate information, capture information. Um, it's also um, where where the solution application sits. So the sort of modules, if we have, say, finance, we have um, asset management, we have materials, we have those sort of things, that's the applications. And so how they all fit together and work together is really what um, architecture or solution architecture is all about or system architecture. And so many people talk about enterprise, but enterprise is about looking at okay, all of these things working together, but then we have integrations between those. We have a number of different ways that we can actually link everything together to make it actually work as we would like it to work. Right, so with the, so with the proliferation of different technologies, technologies and organizations, organizations that are going towards the best of breed model or multiple technologies to run their businesses, it's just a matter of time and system together and figuring out how, how they all talk to each other and play together. That's, that's exactly right. And, and even your large uh, scale, if you, whether it's an Oracle or whether it's a, a SAP or those sorts of things, uh, you know, they have a model where they'll have uh, things like success factors or they have concur. They essentially need integration or they essentially need architecture to actually make them work together. They are just because they're called or owned by SAP. They still need that, that, that connection and that view on how they will work together uh, to, to get effectiveness. Yeah, even if they're not yeah, separate they're not products. Separate so like products if I'm using like SAP S4 HANA or Oracle, Cloud ERP or Microsoft Dynamics 365, whatever it is, you have different modules that do different things within that platform. And even then you still have to do integration and refine what that architecture is, even if you're not talking to third party systems. Is that right? Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And and it's the architecture at that level is saying, well, okay, how... How do we actually want the different things to behave? Because we may set up our financial module to actually have a certain cost allocation methodology or whatever. And so we start to look at the other application and say, well, how do we actually set up the architecture to suit that? So we need to capture the information. We need to, you know, provide that to, so that we can actually talk between the two on the same language as such. And that's what that, that's what that architecture piece is looking for at that uh, level. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So maybe so go on a level deeper then. So, then. so we, we've covered how architecture is really the way different systems talk to one another and the way they interact and integrate. Maybe talk us through what what is that integration. So like when you talk about integration, then what exactly are we talking about? Is it the process flow? Is it data going between systems? All the above? Something different? 
Well, actually, it's a bit of all of the above. So, so one thing could be just data flows. So, so what am I looking for uh, from one module to the other? So that's the data flow. But the other one could be where I'm looking at uh, connecting uh, two separate uh, modules, an external module or whatever. And so I want to be able to say, do I want that in real time? Do I want a two-way upload? So I want information to travel between the two. So, so they both have their own level of, um, I suppose, accuracy at any one time? Or am I just looking for it to update as a batch type thing? So, you know, it might be overnight. So that's where your integrations um, become, I suppose, a little bit more detailed because as we as we link different modules together, we want to be able to say, well, if, if we're looking for a trusted source or a common source of information, we want them both to be on the same page. And we also want those... Um, the information that they carry to actually either update each other. So that's that's where we start getting a bit more complex in what we call an integration as such, or how we how we set up those integrations. Right. So right. So what's so an example? So what's an example? Do you have a specific have a example specific of a common, common integration, integration point, point or a data point handoff or a process handoff, workflow process handoff between handoff systems, systems, or maybe a recent one that you've seen just to help us understand just understand the basic definition of definition architecture and integration. Yeah, a recent one I've been involved in is a CRM. So we have a, a customer interface where we have customers, uh, we, we ca uh, capture all of the customer information. So, you know, if I've got, uh, in this case, they had a connection um, and so they had an account as such and they were billed via the CRM or the customer module. But we also needed someone to go and connect. So we actually needed the other part of the system, um, the, the work management type system to actually go and connect those customers, maybe do projects for those customers, um, respond to, um, to problems that the customers might have. So you need an under, you need, you don't want to capture the customer information in both places. So you need to actually have that information flow from one to the other. So the person who's going to connect or fix or do whatever has the customer details. And we also want to be able to go back and bill that customer. So we need to be able to have the flow back of information so that the billing can take place uh, for the time spent and the materials used sort of thing. So so that's just a simple one just between two modules, the CRM and, and uh, your works management type. Uh, and then obviously you've got your finance from there because you've got to settle those accounts and, and uh, you know, and make sure that uh, the payment that's come in is recognized and is banked and posted and all those sort of things into a, a ledger account sort of thing. So I'm, I'm not so a super I'm technical not, person, and I suspect a lot of people listening, people listening that, that are executives in particular may not be may as technical as someone like yourself or other people on our team. team. But if I hear that, I think, okay, that sounds pretty complicated. I don't want to have to deal with that if I can help it. So why don't I just go buy a single ERP system that just does all that stuff for me in a seamless, integrated way? Is that is what you're saying? Or even if I do that, I still have to think that way. I still have to think about how that data is going to flow and integrate between the different modules. Is that true? Yeah, that's that's exactly right. One, if if I buy a single system that has a uh, integrated or supposedly integrated CRM, then the data flow needs to be still considered. So, what is it, how am I going to get that information and recognize that on my my particular? Uh, work order or my requests for work and those sort of things. And so if, whether it's a data flow or whether it's two systems talking to each other, there's a level of, uh, there's a level of architecture that's needed to make that happen. Yeah. Yeah. Makes total Makes sense. Total sense. We actually have a, a sort of a follow-up lead-in question that almost, it almost seems like it was perfectly timed and it was perfectly timed. This is over on LinkedIn. Um, Chad Shortridge asked a really good question related to what you were just talking about, which is, 
how do you manage one source of truth for data? I think that's a million dollar question that a lot of a lot of organizations ask. We hear that a lot from our clients. What, how do you manage that single source of truth? If you have, say, in that example, you have your CRM system and your back office ERP, you're gonna you're gonna have these data flows back and forth. Where is that single source of truth, and how do you manage it as such? It, that is a great question, and and it's and it is probably one of the hardest things for uh, organizations to work through when we talk about bringing in things like um, geospatial, and we talk about bringing in uh, those sorts of things. So we say, well, who should be the master of that data? So uh, and and I'll, I'll I'll refer to a um, uh, an asset management type uh, thing. So we'll have asset management where we have a number of different. Um, you know, uh, pieces of equipment somewhere. And so, and there's, there's, uh, there's characteristics about that piece of equipment that we want to hold in the asset management, uh, system. But we also want to be able to know where it is. So spatially, we want to know where it is. And, and, and often what we'll find is that there might be updates that happen spatially that we, we, we want to also have an EAM. So you say, well, who should own that data? Which is the source of truth that we're actually looking for? And again, it's identifying who is the master, who should be the master of that. So, so, um, so if it's in that, that sort of uh, situation from a spatial, the master should be, you know, locational, spatial, all those sort of things should actually be in that geospatial um, module and the asset stuff should be characteristics about the about the history about the performance of it should all stay in the asset management uh, space. If we look at it from a CRM side of things, where's the biggest customer interaction? So so the customer data, customer information, addresses, their billing information should stay in that CRM, whereas the asset works should be able to just. Um, leverage certain aspects of that information. And so the master in that case should actually be the, the, the CRM component. Yeah. yeah. So it, it depends so on the depends type on of data that, that you're data talking about. about. You might have a different answer of where that single source of truth is, depending on what data you're talking about, whether it's a customer master or a product master or an asset master. Those are different different answers that you might have for where that seems where that resides resides yeah that's right that's right and and where where a lot of uh, organizations struggle when it comes to the architecture piece is they try and have a replication in both systems and and that's where you have struggle with getting which is the source of truth as such um uh, and and so what you find is that there is a latency. Uh, always will be some sort of latency. That's even what we call real time. You know, if we're using say field mobility to capture things, and we don't have connectivity um, uh, for a particular point in time, and we've updated and completed some work, that's not going to find its way back into the system and update the CRM until you know. And there's, there's a level of latency that happens there, and so. Um, we've got to, we've also got to understand and manage that side of it. Right. Okay. Thanks Wayne. Great conversation so far. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back with more conversation with Wayne Holtham from third stage in Brisbane, Australia. We'll be right back with more on transformation ground control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to third stage consulting group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks.
If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. Welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. I'm here with Wayne Holtham having a great conversation about architecture, integration, and data. Before this interview, I was, I was thinking to myself as we were prepping for this, I think the questions I wanted to ask you, I was thinking to myself, you know what, this might be the first topic where I can get through at least 20 or 30 minutes of the discussion without asking you a question about change management, but you've we triggered a, a change management question. I just can't help myself and I have to ask you. So, so when you think about change management and if I'm a end user or if I'm a, a part of a project team that's leading a transformation, one of the worries I might have is that now if I have a single source of truth over here, but the data is flowing over here into different systems and different people are touching it, how do you ensure that you're not corrupting the data or that your people, the human interaction isn't creating some sort of data issue? Is that a... So might be a and, and, that's, and that's a yeah, that, that's a great question because if you think it, uh, what what traditionally used to happen, we would come in from uh, or we try to put information in the system, we'd give it to someone. It might have been paper based. They upload it and they do it in a consistent fashion, and so we sort of get some sort of consistency of what we have. Today, we actually open it up a lot more, where we actually say to people from you know whether they be field workers, whether they be customers, even actually entering information through portals. And so we need to be able to make sure that we understand what they, what we want them to put in and where, where the challenges are in what they put in. And so the change piece for, especially for internal employees is something they've never had before. You know, why, why do I need to put all this information? I never did it before. And so the change journey is really, really important for them to understand the why so that then the information they put in becomes consistent. You know, it's, uh, I'll give a, an example. You know, when you've, when you're completing a piece of work, you have a choice to be able to put an additional comment. And someone who doesn't really understand why they're doing that and think that it's a bit of a burden on their time, they'll just put a maybe a full stop. It satisfies the mandatory field that says that we needed data in there, but for everyone else, it's it's not really a beneficial um, input. And so you need to take those people on that journey. What What's the importance of this? Who's going to use it? Why is it important? And you raise a very good point because... Today, we expect a lot more of an ERP and a lot more people interact with an ERP system uh, as an end-to-end. -end. Yeah, so that yeah, behavioral so that piece becomes, becomes critical to ensuring that the architecture, the integration, the data that you've spent so much time and effort and effort, brain power of trying to fix and make sure you get right. You don't want the human one interaction now to just throw that off track and now you've got dirty data or the integration is you know, integrating good data between the systems as it should. Yeah, that's right. And, and often part of the architecture piece there is that functional architecture. So am I going to have consistent catalogs that actually capture, you know, segments of information? So is it, uh, is it um, out of service? Is it broken? Is it, uh, is it in service? Those sort of things as against someone putting in what they um, they might call as um, uh, as, a, as a response that ends up being a text response. So you actually start to get some consistency, and that's where again architecture, the functional architecture piece sits in. So how's it going to function so that it will support the inter, inter integration between some of these other modules? Because uh, you want to limit what's going in there, but you want it to be consistent. Right. Right. 
So, so maybe shifting gears a little bit, I'm sort of doing a flyover here and then we'll come back and dive into this in more detail. And particularly if we have questions from the audience on LinkedIn, YouTube, or Twitter, feel free to chime in and Crowdcast as well. If you're watching on Crowdcast, uh, make sure that you chime in with any questions you might have. But we've covered architecture and integration at a high level. We've started to touch on data at a high level. But maybe help us understand you know, just what is data migration? You know, how does that fit into this whole picture of architecture and integration that we're talking about? Or how does it fit into a transformation in general? It's it's interesting because in the in the past when when we've thought about data migration we were changing a system so we're actually saying I have a system that I've been building data in I've been capturing data I have data that is master master data so it's that sort of thing that it's information about certain things it could be about my customers it could be about my equipment or whatever and then I have the transactional data so what's that information where I've had process flows that you know it might be work orders it might be billing it might be all of those sorts of things and so in in that world we would take what we had in the past and take it into a new system in today's world we're starting to go well well, not, a, not only do we want that, we actually need to configure our data. So as I talked about those catalogs that we're talking about there where we have the drop-down boxes, we need to configure and build all of the data that actually supports that. And so the migration piece becomes probably only about 20 or 30% of what people do today from what they took out of their old system to what they're going to put into their new. But the 70% becomes how do I satisfy the capability requirements I have now for this ERP and 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 that's where we get caught in the fact when we price or we see solution integrators come in they'll actually price a project just on the migration piece well that's a what we find is that's a very minor piece today and that's one of the gaps that um that have and that's that's where you get a lot of that over time and and those sort of things because the business all of a sudden has to actually document things that would have been done on paper before or would have been done in a different way. And so, um, so that, that's a real, it's, it's a big area. And then migration is, is, uh, definitely a, a larger, um, uh, piece or, or, or providing information into the system to make it workable. The second piece is conversion is, is the ability to be able to say, well, if I'm taking one system and putting it in, I might have a time period that I need to actually look forward on or past. And so some of that data migration also is conversion. So I need to take some of my old way of doing things and actually have them so that I've converted that data so it actually sits in the new system, but in a way that I can actually access it just to get continuity of, uh, of information. And so for some organizations, it might be just one financial period. For some organ other organizations, it could be many financial periods forward just to be able to get that continuity of information. Right, right. So, so when should organizations start this whole process? You know, if I'm if I'm going through a digital transformation as a company, or if I'm a leader in a company that's going through this, when should I start thinking about all this stuff we talked about? Data, integration, architecture. Where does that fit in the grand scheme of things in the sequence of events? I think the uh, the architecture piece becomes that we need to understand what are we trying to get. Uh, out of the out of the digital transformation so so is it that we actually want to widen our footprint we want to or we might have many applications that sit outside today where we're doing duplication of effort or with double entry and those sorts of things so if we've got that view we want to be able to say well okay now what does that look like if we have a system which talks all of the modules talk together and and data flows well between each one 
And so that's part of that strategy and, and architecture piece. And then we need to look at that from there and say, well, okay, well, what's that going to impact? Is it going to impact things like our cybersecurity? Do we have to um, upgrade that? Do, uh, you know, now we have other people coming in on uh, BYO devices, you know, bring your own device where so access becomes an issue because, you know, we, we only want certain people accessing our system. And so we need the trusts and all of those sort of things put in place. And so... So that high-level strategy is, is important to work out what's this going to look like? How do we want it to function? And then obviously then we cascade down into, so how would those interactions work? Do we want the same data in each system? Do we want, uh, is, are we happy to be able to report out of each system individually? Have we got that capability? Um, so these are all things that that, that first strategy and, and understanding of what I'm trying to get out is an important step. Um, and then, then obviously the detail comes in from there. Right, right. Yeah, and, yeah. and you and I have had, have had conversations with clients in the past, I know we've been in, similar, or in the same calls with clients where there's discussions about systems, that, this plethora of systems that have proliferated over time in their legacy environment. So they've got dozens or hundreds of different systems. In some cases, the clients don't even know all the systems they have. They can't even identify or tell you or give you a document that defines where all the nooks and crannies are, these little point solutions that they've developed over time. So if I'm trying to define my roadmap going forward, how do I, how do I start untangling this web of stuff that I've created from an architecture and integration perspective? It's just sort of organically morphed into this massive mess that now I'm trying to replace with a modern technology. How do I get started on that? Or what advice would you give to someone that's about to go down that path? Well, it's trying to understand where the information comes from. And it's 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 interesting. Like we were on a, uh, an engagement recently and we, we talked a bit about uh, they had, I think, 400 applications that set outside their main ERP system. And uh, but but in in addition to that, we 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 started to then think about okay, how how do we unpack that? And and when we started to talk to them, we realised that the connecting thing was many spreadsheets, you know, the the world of Excel. And um, and so when you start understanding how do you get information in, and where's the process flow, and what's this? In, why do you put it in, and what's what are you doing? Then you start to unpack um, whether the some of the systems that they have still need to be um you know still still need to be kept on or whether they can be made redundant as such and so um so it 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 does take a fair bit of unpacking with the organization to actually really understand what it is and how they get information into this into their main system to maintain that system of truth and uh, many times the linkage is <laughs> a duplicated spreadsheet or, or an upload or an access database and those sort of things that allow them to be able to do that yeah, and yeah. It, it seems like, it seems like this, could this could be a, a work stream or a thread in the transformation, transformation that, could that could either slow either things down considerably down or cause you to take you longer than, than, than you might expect, might or, expect or just as bad, just as bad you know, create sort of, a, sort of a, 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 an obstacle or a prerequisite that you have to overcome before you can really deploy new technology because you kind of have to know what what systems am I going to decommission, which ones am I going to keep, what am I going to do with the data, how am I going to move the data. And if all I do is go pick a new system, let's just say I go pick SAP, Oracle, Microsoft, Windows, big ERP system. If that's all I do is just go pick one of them and say, okay, they give me an 18-month implementation plan, I should go. But you haven't considered, well, what does it mean to untangle this web of 
the system you have and which ones you're going to keep, how you're going to tie it, some of the ones you know you want to keep for regulatory reasons, or maybe it just fills a void that the new system may not have. It just seems like that could really disrupt a project or make it very difficult to plan if you don't have a good handle on it that environment looks like is it would you agree with that or what, what are your thoughts no, it really does and it's one of those things that when that when people build in-house systems or they've they've you know they've built isolated platforms they build a level of of um detail in there that it's very hard for a mainstream to <clears throat> excuse me to be able to replicate and so that's the challenge that you find is when you actually go back to the business and say we're putting in this this solution that's going to be you know wider across our footprint and they go, but but I need this particular piece of functionality, and and to to create it in the new system would be a lot of customization, a lot of heavy, um, you know, complexity when it gets involved in developing that component to it. And so it's you, you've you've then got to try and work out well how valuable is what you're getting, or is that just a nice to have? Because that's where businesses do get confused sometimes in the fact they love certain levels of functionality, but when you go, how do we use it? Well, they don't actually, they can't actually tell you that. And I think that's part of that discovery piece to do early because once you get into the point where you've actually got the system solution architecture out there and, and the functionality side of it and people start throwing these extra tool sets in, it becomes quite difficult to actually then accommodate that. And that's where you start, you know, change becomes harder, um, acceptance becomes harder. Uh, and 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 the pressure to actually build more customizations becomes much greater. Right. Right. Okay. Thanks, Wayne. Great conversation so far. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back with more conversation with Wayne Holtham from Third Stage in Brisbane, Australia. We'll be right back with more on Transformation Ground Control. If you are involved in any sort of digital transformation or business change initiative, you will want to download the 2021 Digital Transformation Report. With its comprehensive overview of business and technology trends and best practices, this report is a must-have guide for any transformation project or executive team. Download this free report by visiting Third Stage Consulting at thirdstage-consulting.com. You can also visit our website to learn more about us or download independent reports, videos, and other best practices. Again, visit thirdstage-consulting.com today to learn how to take your transformation to the third stage of success. Welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. I'm here with Wayne Holtham having a great conversation about architecture, integration, and data. Now, now one question one that question sort of fits into all this all the time, a little bit, a little bit different or sort of a peripheral part of the whole concept of integration and architecture, architecture is platform as a service. service. What, what exactly is that? I know that's a, it's a fairly big buzzword right now. And a lot of vendors are speaking to it or, or building that competency into their offering. What, what exactly is platform as a service and how does it relate to everything we're talking about here today? What, what platform as a service is doing is, is essentially um, we have applications that are SaaS applications, uh, you know, um, subscription service um, applications. But then we also had, now we actually host things in a cloud. And what a lot of uh, vendors found that 
for them to host in the cloud, it didn't make sense because, um, you know, it, there's a lot of infrastructure to be able to set those those data centers up and be able to have the level of security and those sort of things in place. So what they've done now is offer a service called PaaS, which says, well, we'll, we'll combine the hosting piece, we'll combine the applications and all of um, the common integrations, and we'll offer that as a service. And so... Uh, as a as a, a managed service as such, and so um, so it's supposed to take out the complexity. It's also given uh, uh, vendors a chance to be able to probably increase a price point because there's certain areas there which, because of of the sort of uh, way that they deploy it, um, it probably becomes a bit more expensive than a um, a long term perpetual license model that that we've we've coming from as such. Um, so, so that's where the pass bit sits in. It's trying to take out the complexity of all of those, the you know your infrastructure layer as well as your application layer, and and what it takes to be able to have the integrations between each and manage centrally is what they do. Yeah, yeah, great point. Great so, point. so you know, obviously, you know, obviously you know, cloud, cloud, and and hybrid environments hybrid where you have cloud and on-premise. I suspect that creates some architecture or potential pass types. Platform as a service types of challenges, or, or how how does that fit? How does that fit? you know just the whole yeah it does because how do you deploy technology, deploy technology? it's interesting because one of the things that we we sort of uh, in the past we would have a, a you know a data center in in one of our rooms uh, in in our in our organization you know so we had we had all of our servers running in there and all of a sudden now we're actually saying well we're going to run all of our servers offsite somewhere else and so where the where the challenge comes that. Um, uh, you very you don't hear often with PaaS is the fact of that bandwidth connection of how do I get all my data from where I am today what I'm what I'm processing today how do I get that back up to the host and back to me again and so you need a fair bit of bandwidth to be able to do that and so they offer the service of the data center but they don't often talk about what it takes to go from your organization to the data center and that's that's a, that's another cost that is isn't considered it's an infrastructure cost that needs to be put in place so um it's 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 one of the things that uh, I, I suppose is the unseen thing when we talk about cloud because we do you know we can't just have a phone line a telephone line because the bandwidth isn't strong enough to be able to carry all of those transactions that we want to and from right right yeah, it makes it makes total sense makes total sense and i would think yeah, with, I think with Internet of Things, Internet of cloud, things solutions, cloud solutions, um, uh, industry 4.0, you know, some of the shop floor automation for manufacturing types of organizations, organizations, artificial intelligence. It seems like with all that, the other emerging technologies, technologies seems like that puts even like more puts pressure, pressure or adds to the importance, adds to the importance of, of architecture, architecture and the stuff we're talking about. Because that, that, while that stuff's really that cool, you have to figure out how it all ties together in your overall technology landscape. Oh, very, very, very true. It's and and it's uh, it's one of those things that it's it's and that's where the functional architecture piece starts to come in in the sense that if we've got things like we want to put RPA in, we want to be able to do those. We want to be able to get consistency in our process, and so to get consistency, there's two ways: there's the way that people actually use the system, but there's also the way the data um feeds between the different modules or the different um applications as such and so for us to be able to get efficiency from that perspective we need to be able to make sure that the functional architecture works it's it's a it, you know it's consistent it, it it allows a robot to actually pick it up and say i can match this with that so i can process it otherwise you end up where you get a lot of inconsistency 
and you, you it's a pointless exercise actually having RPA and that's that's one of the challenges of implementing RPA po poorly um, when we talk about uh, you know industry 4.0 if, if we've got um, things like demand and we're actually got to, we're, we're tying it up to our manufacturing we want to be able to make sure that we've actually got a very very consistent concise, way that it's uh, the the manufacturing component is interpreting what our supply is when that is just in time all of those sorts of things so so it's they're very very closely tied together now are there certain, are there types, certain of types of software vendors or, or software solutions i should say that you feel like are more architecturally sound or more open or easier to work with from a maybe from more from a end client or perspective perspective though like when you look at sap i know you've done a lot of work with sap with a lot of our bigger clients but you've also worked with smaller smaller erp systems as our, as our the rest of our team has but wait are there any are there any systems that sort of stand out as like these are really solid architectures and maybe just different or maybe you just give us an example of one and why it's strong in some way but it's interesting that the I think where the challenge lies for many of the bigger players is they've come from this legacy of on premise, and so they've they've got code which is really sitting on premise, but they're trying to actually run it in a cloud instance. And this is where SAP and uh, an Oracle and those sort of uh, larger organisations that really have a long history of uh, of um, ERP solutions that were on premise and were quite functional. They're really mature and really advanced. And so to be able to take that next level to go to cloud, it takes a, a whole different way of thinking. Whereas when you look at something like, uh, and just as a, um, a, a, a vendor, not to name, want to name too many, but in four is one where they've developed a solution called M3. And for the manufacturing space, it was, it's been built on cloud technology. It's, it's, it's whole premise of the way they actually constructed it sits uh, it was always meant to be a cloud solution and and so when you look at it it has a lot better um, um, functionality because it's got that that uh, I suppose the way it was developed leverages what cloud offers or, or what modern infrastructure offers whereas if I look at uh, the likes of some of the SAP stuff it is still the maturity level in some areas end up where you, you struggle to actually get consistency uh, of information back out of the system or flow of information through the system. So um, so that's, that's I, I think it's more of that purpose built and SAP will get better and they are getting better over time, but it's it's going to take a bit of time for, for them to get up. But I think Oracle's in that same boat where they're still leveraging old code and old thinking and haven't really embraced the full thing that cloud actually offers or, or that or that uh, those new technologies like uh, RPA and and uh, you know Internet of the Future sort of thing, IoT. Right, right. Okay, thanks, Wayne. Great conversation so far. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back with more conversation with Wayne Holtham from Third Stage in Brisbane, Australia. We'll be right back with more on Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, 
Our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com. Transformation Ground Control. I'm here with Wayne Holtham having a great conversation about architecture, integration, and data. Now, speaking of Oracle, yeah, speaking and, of Oracle and, and, and SAP and some of the other vendors you're talking about, if I just look at SAP and Oracle, SAP and Oracle they, both they both emphasize the value of their database. So Oracle started as a database company and they you know, take pride in the fact that they use Oracle databases for their, for their product. And SAP used to use Oracle databases. Now they use their own HANA platform. Is how does a database, without getting into too much technical detail, how, how important is that database structure when you think about an overall architecture? Is that something that really is important? Is it overrated? How would you, how would you classify that in the grand scheme of things? Well, a database is, is probably getting more and more important. And, and, the, and I suppose where people would have thought that I would buy a database that was a um, in, in, in SAP world, they've got HANA in Oracle, they've got their own databases. Um, and so, so you would say, well, I'd keep all of my data in that database. And so when I wanted to access that data, that I could access it back in a structured way. Whereas today we've actually got this concept of combining unstructured data, uh, structured data. And we actually then want to actually take that data and actually report on it, review it, analyze it and all of those sort of things. And so the problem that we're, we're seeing with, uh, even, even HANA is the fact that, um, that data is in there, but it doesn't really cope well with actually having other data brought in there. You can you can bring uh, in the in the um, I suppose the analytics layer. You can blend data sources, but it's still hard to be able to get that that modelling and those sorts of things. And so what you're finding now is a lot of the um, your hyperscalers offer things like data lakes and data hubs and those sorts of things, where you store your data in there, and the the HANA might sit. Uh, might contribute to that data lake, but it's not the sole source of data anymore. And so, um, so this whole view of just having a ERP or a, a solution with our database, and whether it be Oracle or whether it be um, SAP, um, we're finding that that's still not enough, especially with the amount of analytics, the amount of reporting, the amount of detail we want back across all of the applications that we have in our landscape. Makes, yeah, makes total makes, sense. Total sense. And speaking and of speaking analytics and reporting, then how how does that how, how fit does that into, fit into or, or how do I how do I tie this all together when I think about architecture integration data and then the end result that we're all really trying to get at is a you know a set of business processes and capabilities that help further our business, but B we're also looking for those dashboards or reports, business intelligence, whatever you want to call it. That tells us how we're operating, or, or better yet, even helps us predict what might happen in the future. So, how does that tie in? How does that whole concept of reporting and BI and analytics? How does that tie into this whole concept of architecture integration? Where is it fit? Well, it, it to me, it should actually fit right at the beginning because when we're doing this strategy, it's okay. How do how will we know that what we're doing in the way we conduct our business and the way we use our technology? How will we know that that's actually working well for us? 
Sadly, it's always left to the last because everybody goes, well, we'll just get a report out for that. But if you don't have the data structured uh, appropriately or you don't have the architecture between the who's the master, who's not the master, what the flows of data are, then it's very hard to get consistent, accurate reporting to analyze um, and, and to monitor. So if we want to know processes are being done, uh, you know, carried out effectively, we need to be able to see that that process is clear. But then where's all of the points that identify that at each step of the way that is actually being done as we had predicted or as we would like it to be. And so so reporting becomes the bit at the start. We need to say, well, at this point here and this point here and this point here, here's where we would want information to be able to allow us to be able to see what's going on, how we're performing. And then once we've got that basis, then we can start to analyze where the gaps are. And uh, so it, it's, it's in my mind, as I said, I think it's the, it's the, one of the first things when I'm talking about strategy, I talk about, well, what do you want to see out of this? How will you know you're doing well, which is reporting and analytics as such. And so that informs then your your whole architecture piece and and, and also the complexity that you have between your uh, different applications. So you might find that sometimes you uh, some people say, well, we'll put an API in here where it's a single way API. And sorry for the technology term, but but it's it's a connector. API is a connector as such. But if I've only got a one-way uh, flow and I'm looking to report um, out of a particular application, I'm not going to be able to get that. And so, so that's where it becomes important to understand what you want to get out and then build your system in not the most complex way, but the most functional way. Yeah, that's super yeah, interesting. That's super interesting. It, it seems like so many like organizations we work with have the opposite, opposite thought. 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 You, you started off by saying, you know, you, know, unfortunately, people put this off oftentimes till the end. It's almost like, oh, yeah, we need to figure out what our reports are going to look like. And then you go look at the system or the technologies that you're deploying, and they've got thousands of options or thousands of different reports that are sort of canned vanilla reports, and you're trying to make sense of it all. You're not sure which ones you need or don't need. And so I think your point is really well taken that the better, the better. The, the more you can start with the end state in mind, the better off you're going to have a, a, a clear strategy to help you get there versus waiting till the end to define what the end state might look like. Yeah, that's right. And it's it's interesting when you talk to most vendors, they say we've got, as you mentioned, you know, a number of canned reports in there. But when you talk to the business, they go, oh, that report doesn't really suit what we want and it doesn't give us the information as we need. And usually it's premised on the basis of, a vanilla or a um, a standard solution, but when you actually start bolting things together and you start architecting things together, all of a sudden that changes dramatically. And I want information from this CRM now, whereas that was never in my ERP uh, landscape to start with. And so, so there are the sort of things I need to consider when I'm talking about reporting, and then obviously the analytics piece that comes out of that. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, yeah, it kind of takes me back to, back to a project I had really early in my career, my first five years of being in consulting. And one of the projects I had to do was, was for a big SAP implementation. And I had to go around to all the different departments and get sort of their as-is reporting. Like, I, you know, just show me your reports. What is it you rely on? Show me your dashboards, whatever. And there were so many. And it was just so many of them that they couldn't even explain why they why they why they were running the report, who was using it, what they were doing with the information. They just had gotten in this routine of creating all these reports that in most cases they just weren't using or is just one field, you know, one piece of data on this big report that that's really what they wanted. And so I had to go through and figure out the as is and then sort of rationalize and narrow it down to the 
real reporting needs work. Needs work. But that whole process, that I mean, that just took a lot of time. Lot of you know, time. It's, you're, you're sort of relying on tribal knowledge and, and trying to reconstruct why and how you got to where you are today and do you really need that going forward and what should it look like going forward. That whole process, you know, that can take time. That probably takes longer than just to deploy potential reports, but you have to do it to be able to know sort of what that end state is going to look like. Oh, you do, because some of those reports actually probably drive some of the um, the processes or some of the the ways that the organization operates. But the, the additional piece to that is interesting is we're moving forward to what we call trusted source. And the reason we want to be able to have a ERP or a digital transformation where we have a lot of modules all working together is that we have data that's consistent in one system as such instead of in multitudes of systems. And, and, the, and, and when we talk about reporting, it's about saying, well, if I want to report out of this single system, how do I get that trusted information? Whereas in the past, we would maybe download it, put an Excel, do a pivot, you know, uh, do some, do some uh, spreadsheets and those sorts of things. And, and we would report on that. How accurate is that? And I suppose that's the question that as we go in the strategy piece, is that a really important thing for us to be able to have accuracy in the information we have to make better decisions? Or is it, we're just happy with the fact that someone's got a spreadsheet and they've been able to uh, present us information that we feel comfortable about. We maybe trust it based on the person that's maybe given it to us, but you know, when you, sometimes when you look into that, you see that they've filtered out some of those things that probably they didn't want people to see. And so, so it's 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 that sort of thing about making sure that um, when we talk about reporting and and uh, that sort of stuff, that we we do leverage the 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 system that is this trusted source as such and so um and so understanding the architecture how it's going to sit you can see how it keeps building up um uh, the different layers and reporting is one of those ones that probably unpacks many of the uh, of the the gaps and performance issues that the business has right right makes, makes total sense makes total sense so maybe so just as sort of a, sort of a capstone a question, capstone sort of tie question, this all together, tie all together and, and wrap up the wrap conversation. conversation. What, what, what advice would you have for someone for that's someone about to start on a transformation, transformation and they're, they're maybe not sure maybe what, not to, sure do what to do with this whole big work stream big we're, talking stream we're talking about here as we talk about architecture integration, data reporting. They don't really know what to do there. Maybe they've decided that they're going to deploy new technology or technologies. Maybe they've got Maybe the they've process got improvement stuff figured out, the change management stuff, stuff figured out, project governance, all, you know, all that other stuff that's really important, but they haven't figured out what to do here in this work stream. What, what are some of the key takeaways or things that you really want to make sure you keep in mind as you start down this path within this work stream? Well, I suppose one of the first things is don't ask a technology vendor um, how to solve that problem because, uh, that you know, they, they've got a, a whole uh, price list uh, book of, uh, of how they'll solve that problem. The, the, I think the first stage is to be able to uh, define define your and we call it strategy. But what's the, what does what does strategy mean? It's it's saying well, how do we want to operate? What do we want to do? Is our business context still the same? And then out of that, so how how much of our business do we actually want to have interacting with this system? And so that starts to then influence your. Um, your architecture from that side of it. And then are we going to have external people in the system? Um, so cybersecurity and access becomes one of the things we need to consider. So it's, you, you sort of under, try and get an understanding of how you're going to work in your current business context and how it looks like it's going to be in the future because it's no good planning just for what you do today. 
you know, ERPs are around for 10, 15 years sort of thing. So, so you need to be thinking, okay, what is coming up? How do I get um, value out of this in the longer term? And so, um, so what, what is that going to look like? And, and that strategy piece is probably the most important that an organization needs to look at itself and really understand its own level of maturity because many people believe their maturity is much greater than it actually is. And it probably over time, you know, they've grown older and so they've grown more mature. But when it comes to how they maybe use the system, you sometimes find that that's, that's eroded over time uh, because new people have come into the business processes that were defined initially aren't uh, followed anymore. There's new workarounds. And so you need to take that step back and go, how mature are we? And and how are we going to move to this next step? And that becomes change, but also also understanding what do we want to be when we grow up? And, and it's a, a saying you say often, uh, Eric, and it's one that I really resonate with because many people think they've grown up, but they don't understand there's a whole new level to grow up to sort of thing. So. Yeah, and that's yeah, and that's actually a great actually closing great comment for really comment any, for really any aspect, aspect of transformation. transformation. I mean, certainly for what we're talking about here today, it's relevant, you know, as far as defining where we want to be when we grow up and how mature we are today versus what we, how mature we might want to be in the future. But that you can say the same thing for your future state business processes, what your processes look like, and like the organizational design and the change management that goes along with that. What do we want that part of that? organization right so it really is you know really this should be right up there on par with the other parts of the transformation in terms of defining what is that end state vision what do we want it to look like and how are we going to get there and avoiding that temptation to say well i don't really need to worry too much about it because it's complicated it sounds confusing i'm just going to go buy an off-the-shelf erp system or some sort of enterprise technology that's going to solve that problem for me and that's one of the biggest mistakes you can make is just assume that the silver bullet is going to define all this stuff for you. You still have to do this hard work regardless of what technology you are going to deploy. That's right. And, and, and it helps you along the way when you're implementing as well, because once you've got that understanding of what the future looks like or what, what you really wanted it to be like and, and how you would see that, then as you get implementing, you find that there's challenges come up along the way and, and the, the potential is that, oh, well, we need to increase scope or we need to change direction. If it doesn't satisfy back to how we're operating, then we need to really question whether those changes are valid changes as such. Because, um, and, and so it helps us get to that point of what are we delivering and what's that going to look like early on so we can actually monitor that all the way through and, and it puts less risk on the fact that we're actually going to go off track or have a tangent or, or do those sorts of things. All right. Thanks, Wayne. Thanks for being on the show today. Great conversation. As I mentioned before, I always learn a lot every time I chat with you. So I appreciate having you here. So we're going to talk about some of these concepts and themes that we just discussed with Wayne, Kyler, and Parisa and I are going to discuss that in a bit more detail and dive a little bit deeper into some of those topics here in just a moment. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, Contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us 
and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. Welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. My name is Eric Kimberling here with Parisa Noble and Kyler Cheatham. Be sure to follow us on social media if you don't already. You can find us on YouTube, LinkedIn, Twitter, among other social media platforms. You can follow Third Stage Consulting and or myself, Eric Kimberling, uh, for daily thought leadership as it relates to digital transformation. And speaking of digital transformation, what would you guys think of that interview with Wayne? He's just great. I love Wayne. And I I got a new perspective I feel I didn't have before, uh, just in the sense that this conversation and concept of system architecture and data needs to happen at the beginning of a transformation project. I think that's something that, you know, you're so caught up in creating your shortlist and figuring out what you need to do. Do you consider your system architecture and how it's going to, you know, intertwine with everything that you're changing? Um, you know, he spoke about everything from, you know, having your system speak to each other and making sure your integration points work, you know, well together. And then also reporting and analytics. What type of reporting do you need? Um, what data is kind of the most important that you need to revert back to? So my question is, you know, where exactly does it fall in at the beginning of your digital transformation? Is it something that parallels to your software selection process where you're compiling your shortlist and, you know, you kind of want to define what you need before you start looking for your shortlist or where does it fall into that initial phase? Well, it's, it, it's certainly up front to your point. It's, that's the, I think the thing we can all agree on, although a lot of organizations don't recognize that or they don't think a lot about it until they get into the sort of the, the build phase of their, of their transformation. But you know, maybe just for a second to talk about why it's so important to do up front. I mean, you have to, you almost have to do it up front if you want to have a realistic understanding of what your implementation plan is going to look like because your integration and the way you tie together other systems and the way you address data, that ultimately is going to affect your, your overall timeline and cost. So then the question is, well, how early do I do it or where do I do it? What we end up doing for most of our clients, especially ones that are leaning towards a, a an ERP system that can handle as much of their needs as possible, but also recognizing that most organizations don't find any one system that can do everything they need and they inevitably will have other systems. Or we were talking about, you know, uh, pharmaceutical and biotech earlier in the episode. That's an example of a couple industries where you typically will have regulatory systems that you can't replace. So you need to be able to integrate with those systems. Um, cannabis in the United States becoming legalized. That's another one. It's, it's legalized, but it's heavily regulated. So you have certain systems you have to tie to to be you know, uh, operating legally uh, in that industry. So whatever the reason is, most organizations have multiple systems they've got to tie together. They've got data throughout the organization. And defining up that up front is important. So if you are leaning towards a, let's just say a, an ERP system, you can go ahead and select the ERP system. Once you know what that system is, then you identify where the gaps are and where the bolt-ons are going to need to be, how that integration is going to look. And then ultimately, before you begin the implementation, you would have that all flushed out. Otherwise, you're going to be shooting in the dark trying to figure out you know, how much time and money it's really going to take to implement. And that's a big part of why so many projects go over time and over budget is because they don't take that time up front to plan. So you may feel like you're going slower by doing it, and you may feel like you're actually delaying the project. But in actuality, you're speeding things up, and you're giving yourself a better chance to succeed by defining that solution architecture up, up front. 
So when you when you have multiple systems that are going to be speaking to each other and you know that you are going to need to integrate them, are you looking for a software that is more flexible or does it matter? Can yeah, you, all systems do it? Most systems do it to some degree, but certain systems do it better. You know, they have a more open architecture and are built more for um, for integration to, to third parties. There's some systems like, um, you know, I'll use SAP as an example, S4HANA. You know, they try, to, you can do integration there, but, you know, SAP is an example of a product that's built or intended to be sort of the entire organization tied into that system. Um, so it's not that you can't do it or you don't want to do it necessarily. It's just that I think they're, they're more focused on creating, you know, integration amongst it, the, its own system or suite of products. Um, but I think you do have to look at the integration and the ability to integrate, the flexibility, the openness of the architecture. That's all important stuff. And I think that's why, um, you know, companies like Oracle and Microsoft, for example, they, they tend to have more of an open architecture that's easier to integrate with than some of the other systems in the market. Um, there's also this whole concept that we talked about, um, I think it was three episodes ago when we had Brad Feeks from Estes Group on and we were talking about cloud managed services and that sort of thing. And he also brought up this concept of, of uh, platform as a service where you're not just moving a bunch of applications to the cloud and tying them together, but you're, you're creating this whole um, platform in the cloud that you can tie together and bolt, to, bolt on different systems, um, including like Internet of Things and, um, you know, di different data points, shop floor automation and shop floor sensors and things like that that you might want to tie together uh, within your operation. So there's a lot of different ways to think about it, but you definitely want to be looking for options that give you that flexibility and openness to tie together everything you need. Got it. And then is that typically done in-house, tying everything together? Or is it something that, you know, you'd rather outsource as part of the full transformation? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I'd say it depends on the company. I mean, a smaller company that doesn't have much of an IT staff might just by necessity need to outsource it. A larger organization with, you know, architects on staff and, um, you know, the right skill sets that are already on staff or maybe you have the ability to, to add that skill set to your internal team because of your size and scale, um, they, they might be more likely to take it in-house. Um, either way, you probably need some level of outside help doing that, but I think that should be very tentative, you know, as far as not relying too much on outside consultants to do that stuff for you. You have to kind of, most organizations need to have that in-house if they want to be effective, especially if they want to use information technology and data as a competitive advantage, there's some benefit to having that skill set in house if you have that capability or ability. You know, a mom and pop shop with ten or twenty or fifty employees may not have the luxury or the budget to hire a system architect, but if you're a large organization that has a robust IT staff internally, then you may want to think about reskilling or bringing in outside help or bringing someone outside to come in internally to to help manage that longer term. Yeah. And one of the benefits to build on that um, of of going through those exercises driven internally is you're able to really take a, a granular look at your processes, right? Are they optimized? Is this the long-term structure that you're looking for? What does the, the product look like? I know Wayne um, did a blog on, on functional architecture recently. And he gave a great example of a, a mousetrap, which was really kind of just a simple way to show 
the different pieces in which you need to really analyze each piece of your business processes and doing that internally then allows you to optimize them. So going forward, you're saying, this is what we do now, but this is really what we'd like to do with each piece of your business. So I think it's, we always talk about that strategic alignment. I think it's a key piece to understand in order to say, this is where we want to be as a business. Yeah. That's a, that's a great point. And, you know, the other thing that comes to mind too, is that when you, when you define your architecture, you may have a core ERP system, let's say that's, that's sort of your, your core back office, and then you're going to tie everything kind of in a hub and spoke model back to that, that back office. Um, in other cases, you might have a best of breed where you've just got a bunch of systems that, you know, there is no one core central system, but you've got multiple systems that need to talk to one another. But in either case, you know, there's, you want to make sure that your architecture view of the world and your data view of the world isn't too product centric. So in other words, um, if I'm an SAP system integrator and I'm a solution architecture that works for SAP, I'm going to come in, I'm going to tell you, first of all, that I'll do the, I'll do the architecture for you. I have the skill set to do that. And, um, that's, you know, okay. We all have, we all have our self interests and things that we'll, we'll sell ourselves with, but let's just look in the mind of a SAP solution architect. So I'm going to tell you, I can do it for you, but I'm going to come in at it from the lens of SAP. How do I tie this all to SAP and how do I tie all this data together? That's not a bad thing necessarily, but that's not necessarily exactly what you need. What you need is to look at the business and how you want the business to operate. And it may not be an SAP centric approach. There may be situations where the single source of truth might reside in a different system other than SAP. And that might be the right answer for you. But if I'm looking at it through the SAP lens or whatever vendor you're implementing, I'm not going to see that. I'm, I'm going to be focused on just tying everything back to that one system. So I think that's a, another nuance that's really important. Back to your question about, do I do this in-house? Do I leverage outside help? I think leveraging outside help can be a value, but you want to make sure that outside help is looking at it objectively and not you know, with a technology, a specific vendor or technology lens. Right. Not a bias. Yeah. Kind of filtered approach. You want something that works with your business, not fitting your business to the software, which it sounds like sometimes that's okay and that will help your processes. But usually I would imagine, you know, fitting your your technology to your business is what will really help you optimize your competitive advantage and kind of stay true to what you do as a company rather than fitting an, a software because the reality is a lot of companies will also be using that software. So it would it would definitely hurt your diversification if you, or differentiation, sorry, if you were to kind of go the, the latter route. Um, and then I you kind of answered this question, uh, but I'm curious on the extent of system architecture's presence if you decide to do a full, you know, ERP facelift for your company or if you're doing the best of breed approach. Um, you know, what... To what extent is building in your architecture into your kind of conversations initially relevant when it's a full-on ERP digital transformation, like you're you're replacing your technology with an ERP? Is the system architecture kind of already built into that ERP system? Um, and is it kind of, you know, less relevant, would you say, as opposed to if you were coming at it with, you know, the best of breed approach or doing add-ons to your existing ERP? Like is the level of importance um, in discussing and defining your system architecture still there when you have a full-on ERP transformation? Yeah, it's important. Um, 
you know, I'd say it's probably just even more important when you have a best of breed scenario or where you have a lot, you know, the more systems you have, the more important it is. So if you have a single ERP system and you have to tie it back to a handful of systems, that's still a fairly big deal. If Assuming you want to have seamless integration and you want to have clean workflows and efficiencies and things like that and invisibility and all the reporting and stuff that you were mentioning before, Parisa. So it, it's, I'd say it's, it's, um, you know, highly important in, in all cases, but extremely important when you're talking about best of breed uh, environments. Interesting. So that makes best of breed sound a little bit more complicated. <laughs> it, it certainly is. And from a technical yeah. perspective, it is. Uh, right. But from a user acceptance and an operational alignment perspective, it could be better if you if you if you're going and finding all these different point solutions that do exactly what you need. And it's more specific to what you need in different parts of your business. It might be that yeah, you're creating technical complexity, but you're making it easier to create business value. You know, from that technology, you're addressing efficiencies. You're you know getting better user acceptance of the technology because it presumably works better for that area. So I, there's benefits and, and risk, just like any trade-off you have to make. So you have to look at, is that risk and that cost of the technical complexity, is that outweighed by the benefit or are you spending more time and complexity and cost on the architecture than you're going to get in terms of business value? That's sort of the, the trade-off you've got to assess. And that's a different answer for different organizations. I'd say right now it's about, it's probably about 50, 50, maybe leaning heavily, I mean, Maybe lean, lean ugh, I cannot talk today. Maybe leaning slightly towards uh, erring on the side of single ERP or leaning that direction, um, but it's still it's a pretty good mix. I'd say there's there's a lot of clients where best of breed just makes more sense for whatever reason. Yeah, and I think right. Wayne um, hit on a good point there too. Is is a whole ERP suite is not a solve, right? A lot of people think, or a lot of companies think oh, all my processes are broken, I'm super inefficient, so I need an ERP system in order to fix all of these things. And that's not how we should look at it, right? When we talked to Wayne is, is what do you, you have to define what you want your processes to look like. And then the software enhances that, right? And creates those efficiencies. So I thought that was really well said during that interview around this isn't this isn't going to solve all of that for you. You cannot put the technology in the driver's seat. That needs to be the passenger, right? You need to sit in the driver's seat with, with your overall goals. Yeah. Right. No silver bullet, as you always say, right? <laughs> it's very true. <laughs> I love it. Well, I'm excited to continue talking about really the data side of it too and, and you know, more about integration points. Yeah. So let's take a quick break and we'll do that. We'll come back and talk more about data integration points. I know you also had some questions around uh, the process for how you define your, your architecture and data strategy. So let's take a quick break. We'll uh, come back and talk through some of those topics and questions. We'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us 
and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. Welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. My name is Eric Kimberling here with Parisa and Kyler, and we're talking about data integration and architecture, uh, just building on some of the topics that Wayne had talked about uh, in the conversation I had with him early in this episode. And Kyler, I know you had a question about integration that you wanted to talk about as a follow-up to his. Yeah, his definitely. So I know um, Wayne mentioned that you still need, even with a new ERP system, um, you still need to integrate all of those modules. So I wondered if you might elaborate on how to best start that process or, or kind of dive into what that really means for a business. Yeah, that's a, it was a great point and, a, and it's a great follow-up question in that a lot of times companies think, well, I don't need to worry about integration or architecture because I'm just you know buying one single ERP system. And let's just assume that's true. You actually are going to put in just one system that's going to do everything you know amongst itself and not have to tie to other third-party systems. That's very rare, but let's just say it's true. Um, in that case, you still, especially with uh, some of the larger software solutions out there, like the SAPs, the Oracles, the Microsofts, um, even some of the tier two systems like Infor, for example, has a lot of different modules and systems that can tie together and just dealing with the architecture of the internal modules can be fairly complex, especially if you don't have that skill set or you're not used to doing that. So it is... I don't know if I, I'm not sure how to, how to quantify or compare the order of magnitude difficulty of doing that amongst one single system with the modules within it versus single system to third party. Um, I suppose it depends on what the technology is and which ones you're trying to tie it to, but it is a, a very important data or a very important point that you make in that you do have to, you have to define that and, and account for that in your overall transformation plan. Um, and it's even more true in cases like in the case of, uh, let's just take Infor and SAP as examples. Infor and SAP are both examples of vendors, software vendors that have gone out and acquired third parties and now they're selling those systems underneath their umbrella, which is fine. That's their prerogative. In some cases, that could be a good thing. But now that's even more of a misaligned expectation that customers often have in that, you know, Infor is providing all of my all of my technology needs, so architecture must not be that complex. Well, actually, it is because they're different systems in many cases. You got, you know, you have Infor M3, you have Sightline, you have Cloud Suite, you have on the supply chain side, you have Infor Nexus. So, if you're trying to tie together bits and pieces of all those systems, that's that's fairly complex. So, I I don't know that there's a material difference in doing it, you know, amongst the same system versus to external, other than you know, it might be easier to have a skill set, you know, that, that knows a specific system. Uh, versus, you know, all the unlimited variations that you might have of combinations, you know, with third-party systems. Right. And as far as support for that, this might be a, a really obvious question, but is that what the system integrator does? They're literally called a system integrator. So is that part of their scope um, in what they help clients with? They they typically do, um, but again, it's... Uh, it's a, it's usually more from the product centric perspective. Um, oftentimes, you know, if we're, if we're integrating modules, then yes, that's usually what the system integrator would do or one of the things the system integrator would do. But if you're tying to third party systems, even if it's back to that core ERP system, or certainly if you're tying together unrelated systems, you know, to that vendor, chances are they're not gonna have the right skill set to do that because they're so focused on one product. 
Um, and that's back to that point I made earlier about having that objective agnostic architect that can help you yeah. navigate some of those decisions. Yeah. So that would be a part of your core team, right? Um, so the system integrator would really sit on the product leadership side, right? And then whomever you had in more of an independent role um, would help with the integration as well, though, more business focused. Is that what I'm hearing you say? Yeah. So you'd have, like, we just did an org chart for a uh, client the other day where you have the steering committee up here at the top, and then you've got the the project core team that's led by the, um, the project program manager, let's call it. And then underneath that, you have the the system integrator technical lead and all the team that falls within that and the solution architect for that particular product. But then you're going to have other work streams. You're going to have change management. You're going to have data. You're going to have whatever other systems you might be deploying. There's going to be leads for each of those. But then sitting up here next to the PMO, you know, sort of that core team in the, in the program management, you should have an overarching solution architect that looks at everything and how it all ties together and is able to tie it all together. So it's, it's a bit of both. Yes, you know, at the granular technical level, you have a, a system architecture need, but then you've got a broader solution architecture you've got to look yeah. at as well. Well, thanks for explaining that. I know it would be cool to go through um, like an org chart for a team on an episode um, and kind of talk through all those roles at one point. So Priest and I can understand oh, what we're talking time. about. <laughs> yeah. And in the meantime, there's, I actually uh, whiteboard it, uh, whiteboard the whole project structure um, on a YouTube video on my YouTube channel. So oh, great. Sure to, if you just go to my YouTube channel, you can search for I think if you search for organized project team, you'll find a whiteboard video where I sort of sketch out what a what a project team should look like. And we talk about solution architect within that video. Perfect. We yeah. still cover it in this episode sometime, but in the meantime, yeah. you can go watch that video too. Love it. Now, I know data is just, it's really the, the centerpiece of a transformation, regardless of what you're talking about. Because if you have... SAP or Microsoft Dynamics 365 or, you know, whatever tech solution you have, it all depends on your data and how clean your data is, you knowing your data inside and out. I know that um, Wayne was talking about understanding exactly how and where your data flows from system to system, how consistent it is, having everything kind of speaking that same language. So if you do want to integrate an RPA right? It's a little bit more seamless than, you know, if everything was kind of discombobbled, if you will. So I guess that prompted the question for me, if you have a company who's kind of a hot mess, who doesn't know their single source of truth, and they have, you know, a, a couple different data points um, for for different things from system to system, how do you untangle that mess? Have you had clients that have, you know, trouble specifically with their data not being ready or they, they don't know which, you know, data point is accurate. Yeah. That's a huge problem. And you think about the average organization that's about to switch out their new technology or, or switch out their old technology. Um, chances are they've had the same technology in place for at least a decade or two. And during that decade or, or two, the data just gets corrupt and not because even if you brought the data over originally and it was perfectly clean, which it rarely is, but even if it were the human intervention and the process breakdowns and just human error over the years will create uh, redundant data, conflicting data, uh, erroneous data. And if you don't have a, 
especially if you don't have a strong master data management structure in place where you have governance around how you're going to manage data uh, in your master data um, and a process to go clean up transactional data along the way, as well as your master data, um, that, you know, is a recipe for you're just going to get dirty data over time. So it's a very common problem. And, and the bigger problem even isn't just the fact that organizations find that their data is corrupt or dirty or needs to be cleansed or all the above, but that they don't account for that in their plan. You know, they usually there's a little bullet in the system integrator or the vendor's statement of work that says, we're not doing data migration. We'll move it over for you once you've given it to us, but we're not cleaning it for you. We're not going to go make sure it's all right. We're assuming that you have that figured out. You know, and I'm paraphrasing, obviously, that's not at all legalese. And uh, you wouldn't want it worded that way in your contract, but usually they have like one bullet or disclaimer along those lines. And it looks innocuous enough. You don't think much about it at the time. But when you get to it, you realize, wow, this is a mess. And this is going to take a ton of time and effort to clean this data and to map it to the new system and, you know, all the stuff that goes along with it and then ultimately migrate it. So that's all stuff you have to think about, it, you know, when you when it gets to implementation planning for sure. Wow, that sounds like a hefty process if you are, you know, a victim of that and haven't been, you, you called it data management, right? Master data management. So is that Typically, is that its own team within an organization? We're, we're talking a lot about organizational structures here, but is that a dedicated team on your IT department that would specifically just be focused on scrubbing data and making sure everything's clean? Yeah, that's uh, oftentimes either part of IT or oftentimes it's a sort of a, a hybrid role that falls between IT and the business because a lot of it is uh, a lot of it. It's a lot of it's not just a technical issue of actually cleaning the data data. A lot of it is more the operational side and the organizational side of it to make sure that you don't have um, people that are entering information wrong, for example. Like if you just use a small example, if, you, if you're a customer service rep and you're, you're taking orders uh, from customers um, and you're entering, you're consistently or occasionally entering data in the wrong field or you're not capturing data the way that you should be or the way that is the intent of the organization, that's going to create data problems. You're not doing anything nefarious necessarily you're not intending to disrupt the data but you do that however many times a day times however many customer service reps you have and you can see how that can proliferate into a into a big problem so operationally that's more of an operational issue that's not really an it problem that's operational and organizational someone doesn't know that they're supposed to be entering data differently in that field or in the right field or whatever it is so that's part of the training and the process flows and just making sure that everything that touches data is is going to be you know keep it keep it clean basically so how do you come back from that? I mean, what if there are customer service reps that are entering, you know, something that's inaccurate and then a year later that person leaves and then someone else has to backtrack and figure out what the actual numbers are? What would you say to the person that's backtracking? That sounds like a daunting task. <laughs> well, I'd say go ahead and, and fix the data, but also focus on fixing the per the root cause of the problem. You know, why are... You know, customer service reps that, you know, to your point, it's a high churn profession. Typically, usually those aren't people that stick around for a super long time. So you're going to have some turnover. So you have to have the processes and procedures in place and the training in place for new people to come in and know exactly what the process is and how they should be entering data. And, uh, you know, when you're going through a transformation, that's the prime opportunity to do that. But a lot of organizations or most organizations don't. They just slam in the new technology. They've got the tribal knowledge in their heads of how it was deployed and what they think they want the processes to be. But then new employee comes in and doesn't understand or it just takes some time to figure it out. And in the meantime, they break some stuff. 
So the more you can document that and, and, you know, have a clear, clearly defined set of workflows and have it clearly established in the system and certainly set up the right security uh, safeguards and things within the system so that only certain people can touch certain master data, for example, you know, you don't want, um, for example, you don't want someone that creates a vendor in the system that same person having the security profile to also go pay a vendor because then I could go set up Eric Kimberling as a vendor and I'm going to go pay Eric Kimberling a million dollars. Um, that's pretty extreme, but that does happen uh, more than people realize. You know, you get uh, a company of 10,000 people, you get that one person that is setting up a vendor and they're paying themselves little small amounts here and there and, and uh, no, one's, no one's really questioning it. So it, there is a technical component of it as well, but most of it's going to be operational. The technical piece, um, I know Wayne had also kind of opened that up to organizational change management, right? Understanding why are we filling out this field? What does this mean? How does this enhance my job? And go back to when we are setting expectations for these specific positions that we explain to them the benefit, which is kind of what we talked about on our last episode was was understanding how this will enhance their job, not so much deter from their overall production um, type of thing. You were going the exact same direction I was going because that did prompt a, an OCM question. And just to piggyback off what you're saying and take it a layer deeper, it's, you know, what's in it for me should be your message, but each person has a different motivator. You know, I have another uh, contact who recently integrated a CRM um, and their sales team is not using it. They're not putting in the data because they didn't have to do it before. Um, and the conversation has kind of pivoted from this will make your job easier because that's kind of a, you know, people want an easier job, right? So that'll resonate to an extent. But if it's somebody that's motivated by money, you're, you kind of change your messaging to you're leaving money on the table and you could have a deal fall through if you don't put, you know, the data and where you're at in the sales process into the CRM. So your team knows where they're at if you're on vacation so that you can pick it up and run with it. Um, your team could pick it up and run with it and have the full context. So, um, you know, that's just an interesting, uh, you know, spark that kind of just came through in my conversations with him is yes, message, your message should be what's in it for me for them, but it's also taking it, you know, to a little bit more of a granular level and seeing what does that person specifically need in order to kind of move the needle and have them actually use the the CRM correctly or whatever technology correctly. Yeah. Yeah, it's very true. Wow. OCM plays a huge role in everything. <laughs> I know. You know, I... it's just episode after episode we're always talking about organizational change management and it comes up to some capacity, I feel like in every conversation because it is so important. It's almost like uh, we should do a for those on the the those in the audience that may enjoy drinking games that uh, it, it may be an opportunity to take a shot every time we bring up change management because oh, it's going to happen a few whoa. times in every episode. So, But yeah, anyone that's listening internationally and just to, just to call out a few more resources for Wayne, since he is a, a team member for us, he did um, a great blog on functional archi- architecture that you can find on our website, our other podcast, digital stratosphere um, with our host, Sarah. So for all you Aussies out there, it's all Aussies on that one. Um, he goes into a deeper dive as well. Um, and then we also have all of his contact information on our website. So if you do have questions, obviously you can post them here and we always love to hear from you, but he is accessible if you have 
um, more questions about, you know, your um, your data or, or what that looks like for your organization. So tons of content around Wayne. We really enjoy having him as a, a part of being a, a thought leader for third stage, um, just because he's so nice too, you know, <laughs> so approachable and the way he explains things are, at least for me, are, are really digestible. So I'm excited to have him on. Yeah, couldn't agree more. This is definitely a kind of a more complex topic. And like you said at the beginning, Eric, he kind of explains it in a way where, you know, puts it in layman's terms for the green people in the tech world like me. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> That's funny. And I had one more question before we wrap it up as it relates to defining your future state, because, you know, as you guys wrapped it up, you were talking about, you know, what's the process of figuring out your system architecture and tying it into what you're doing. And the first step that Wayne mentioned was define your strategy, understand your true maturity and, you know, figure out your future state. Cause that's where it all starts is figuring out what the vision is for, you know, your 10 year play. So my question is how does system architecture and data management really fall into your future state? Um, is it something that you build in or is it something that comes kind of as you move forward with a new technology? Where does it fall? Well, it should fall as part of your, your future state definition. So you're clearly defining what that future state is and how it's gonna integrate. And I mentioned before that part of the reason for that is so that you have a realistic view of how long the project is gonna take and how much you need in terms of resources and budget to be able to address that architecture integration, the data, all that stuff that we've been talking about. Um, the other part of it too is, you know, if you have that clear vision up front, you're going to be a lot less likely to go buy a bunch of shelfware that you don't need. Um, so many organizations get bamboozled into buying all these different modules and advanced capabilities that maybe they don't even need because they're going to integrate to some other system that's going to do that stuff for them. So the better vision you have of what that architecture future state is going to be, the better idea you're going to have of what exactly you need to purchase and you're not going to you know sort of get steamrolled or uh, you know get your arm twisted into buying some some stuff you don't need so there's a lot of upside benefit to it again even though it feels like you know that extra time or effort which isn't significant in the grand scheme of things but it could still feel like some additional level of effort and time it may feel like that's adding to your project but you're actually speeding things way up and you're going to be a lot more efficient and effective when you when you get to that implementation so i would not put it off until you buy the software and then go figure out your architecture. I would do that all up front. That's typically what we do with our clients when we're evaluating systems. Even if what they're really saying is help us go pick new technology, we say, okay, we're gonna help you pick new technology and we're also gonna help you figure out how to how it's gonna tie together. Right, doing your due diligence up front and then you hit the ground running when you actually implement. Makes yep. sense. <laughs> yep, yeah. Well, good, well, thanks for that conversation. That was, that was good stuff, really good questions and good follow-up and uh, We'll definitely have to have Wayne on again. I agree that he's a great guest and he's very engaging, especially when it comes to such a technical topic that's easy for me to get lost in because it's not my strength. And so it's it's good to good to have him on the show and uh, we'll have him again, I'm sure at some point in the near future. So uh, thank you guys both for being here, Parisa and Kyler. I look forward to uh, next week's episode. Appreciate the conversation here today. And thank you to the audience for listening here today. Um, again, you can find us every Wednesday with new episodes on YouTube and all the usual podcast audio platforms. So in the meantime, have a great week and we'll look forward to seeing you next time on Transformation Ground Control.